Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. I was talking with a guy friend of mine recently, and I mentioned the idea of birth being traumatic. And trauma, they said. What do you mean birth is trauma? How can it be traumatic? For many women, it can be. Our sexual organs are also our birthing organs, and understanding our bodies and healing past traumas, or living through and healing from birth, which can be overwhelming, disorienting, amazing, inspiring, or any number of things, is something that I want to talk about today with today's guest. We get to talk to Kimberly Ann Johnson. She is the author of The Fourth Trimester, a postpartum guide to healing your body, balancing your emotions, and restoring your vitality. The Fourth Trimester is a book that changed how I think not just about birth, but also about the postpartum period. Kimberly is a sexological body worker, a somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner, a birth doula, a postpartum care revolutionary, and she is a single mom. She specializes in helping women hands-on in preparing for birth, in recovering from birth injuries and birth trauma, and in healing from sexual trauma. She is the founder of the MAGA Mama movement, and I learn so much from her as I listen to her and read her work around the web. She always has an insightful counterpoint or a new view on what we take for granted in this culture, and I deeply appreciate her insights and her point of view. In today's episode, we talk about how imagery online is not the same thing as being in your actual body, and how when we see pictures of birth, it's not the same thing as actually being in the room with somebody who's giving birth. We talk about what it means to truly experience something. We talk about why there is a separation between the body and the mind and the body and the head, and the ways that we've been culturally conditioned away from our bodies. I love how she dives into where this comes from culturally. We live in a culture that values rationality and productivity and these qualities of the masculine. And as she says, that also means there's this disrespect and disregard for the feminine, the malleability, the flexibility, the cyclical nature of the feminine side. So I can't wait to dig in and bring Kimberly on as a guest today. Huge thank you, Kimberly Ann Johnson, for joining us. And as always, if you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or you want to dig further, you can join us in the Startup Pregnant Facebook group to further the conversation, or you can go leave a comment or a question on the blog at startuppregnant.com. Now let's dig into our interview. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. If you live in the United States, you are entitled to a free breast pump with your insurance. But navigating the insurance can be such a pain and so much paperwork and so many logistics and so many hoops to jump. Aeroflow Breast Pumps, the company that is sponsoring this episode, is dedicated to making the hassle of getting a breast pump a lot easier for brand new mamas, second time mamas, and anybody that needs to get a breast pump. They also have a ton of resources about how to manage breastfeeding and pumping and navigating the transition back to work, including a step-by-step -step guide for how to make an awesome pump room. Head over to aeroflowbreastpumps.com slash startup 
and they will quickly and easily help you qualify for your free breast pump. I just used them for my second kiddo and it took, it really took only a couple of minutes to go on, enter my information. And then they said, yep, I got an email right away. They said, yep, you get a new one. Go pick one out. I picked one out and they said, great, we'll send it to you once your insurance window is here. And they just took care of everything. So I didn't have to have a calendar alert and a reminder and all of these extra steps. So it was super useful and a relief. There is certainly enough to do when you're prepping for a new baby and having somebody like Aeroflow on your team is really helpful. The link is in the show notes and it's also on our website. Everyone, I am so excited to welcome Kimberly Ann Johnson to the show. Kimberly, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks, Sarah. So I want to start out by saying that your book, The Fourth Trimester, connected dots for me in a way, first of all, I hadn't ever heard before, but then also that I just innately and intuitively knew that these things needed to be connected. But it wasn't until Mm. you put them into words that it was so moving. So thank you, first of all, for writing this book. Yeah, thank you. My aunt is also a writer and that's what she said. Like, that's what the job of a writer is, is to put to words what other people feel, but may not be able to express. So I'm so grateful that my experience and, you know, some people say, wow, your birth was so traumatic and I'm so sorry and everything, but I don't think of it that way. I think of my postpartum time as really challenging and there's traumatic elements to it, but I really understood and understand how it was not just a personal journey, but an archetypal journey. And it's really very rewarding for me to know that it's helping other women and becoming kind of a, you know, a companion or a light in a time that can be dark and not in a bad way, although it registers as really uncomfortable and very unfamiliar for most, most people. But it doesn't have to be that way when we have some kind of orientation and people that are leading and walking the path with us. It has things inside of it that like once you've heard them, you can't unsee it. It connects Mm. the dots in so many ways where you're just like, oh, and now that I've read the book, it's actually hard because I find some of it so obvious. Mm. I also remember my, right now I'm pregnant with my second child. Oh, congratulations. Uh, (laughs) Thanks. And I know the past self where I was in the pregnancy with my first kid and just having those two experiences as counterpoints. And then the book, I'm so glad I'm reading the book right now Mm. to prepare for the second one. It's really incredible. So I want to dig in with you. So I want to start with the theme of social programming. There's so many images out there of Mm -hmm. what pregnancy and childbirth, quote unquote, should look like. Like for everyone listening, we all have them. If you just kind of pulled... 20 images from magazines or like think of the last movie that you saw that shows pregnancy and childbirth, we'd get this kind of weird idea that first of all, if you're pregnant, you should be, you know, thin, cute, white, have a perfect baby bump and you're glowing. And then, you know, birth is going to be, oh, you're going to be screaming on your back in a hospital, right? Mm. This is like this weird Social well, there's that, but then there's also the other side of it, which is like you're going to be in like warm Baltic water or in a bathtub that's like, you know, candle lit and that, you know, you're going to be surrounded by women. And so there's definitely imagery throughout the spectrum that is creating expectations and creating behavior 
And ultimately, birth is a somatic experience. It's an experience that happens through our body, which is why it can be so disconcerting if your body has not been your home. And you, like most of us, have lived a lot of your life going around with your brain on the rest of your body. And the only way to quote unquote, prepare for that kind of experience. You know, I know I'm quite shocked by the industry of birth photography because I know people who spend money on a birth photographer before they are willing to hire a doula or a postpartum doula. So they're more concerned about preserving the imagery than they are about their experience of. And almost like a wedding, you know, I want the wedding photography because I want to remember the wedding. But ultimately, birth is something much different because what is required physiologically for a woman to birth well is completely different. So I think that my Instagram feed and Facebook feed is just like all all the time. And when the (laughs) lift came up, like the ban on birth images lifted, I was like, oh my God, like, I want to ban on it. Like, it's too much for me. Like, every time I pull up my phone, I don't want to see a vagina giving birth. Like, I don't think it's gross. I don't think it's weird. I work inside vaginas as my work, wearing gloves and helping people repair sexual trauma, birth injuries, and birth trauma in a somatic way with trauma resolution therapy as my background. And even I am like, this is inundation. And it doesn't matter in which direction it's coming from. Ultimately, birth is happening in our human body. And what would be helpful rather than looking at images of it would be to be around an actual birth, to actually experience birth and feel the feeling tone of it. Everybody says the same thing. Oh my God, that's incredible. And you're a warrior and what a goddess and da, 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 da. You know, oh, you look so ferocious and this and that. That's translating into a very specific part of your brain, just like porn is. It's not necessarily sure you're offering alternate images than the hysterical, you know, pushing the gurney down the hospital corridor and screaming push, but arguably neither are very helpful. Hmm. That's so fascinating. The idea that how we process and receive imagery is a different experience, right? Like we're having a completely different, probably mostly brain head psychological response to the imagery that's very different than the physical reality of our bodies. Can you talk about what it means to be a somatic body practitioner and how you arrived at this as a profession? Totally. So somatic just means through the body. So if you could imagine most people have gone to therapy at least once in their life or they kind of know what it is. It's like you sit down and you talk about things and you kind of excavate and you maybe talk about your emotions and learn how to name your emotions. And you try to figure out why you are the way you are with the idea that if you could just figure it out, if you could just scrape around and excavate a little bit more, then you might be able to do something differently. But most people who come to me, they have extensive knowledge about why they are the way they are, the dynamics between their parents that made them the way they are, the experiences they've had that are leading to their mistrust or fear or 
aversion to sex or attraction to the same kind of person that doesn't seem very good for them or an inability to speak up for themselves, but they're not actually able to change it. And all the affirmations that they've done and all of the trying isn't working. And why? It's because our nervous system is actually what is communicating most of the time. So we think it's our personality. And as women, we really think it's our words. If we just express it, then the person would get it and maybe change. We're like giant nervous systems walking around communicating with each other. And in my work, I'm helping people do that nervous system level repair, which means getting to know the language of sensation and creating continuity between our words, our actions, and our facial expressions so that we're communicating what we really want to communicate. So it's using the body as the compass. And it is growing in incredible popularity. I mean, 30 years ago, the somatic arts were born, probably we could trace it back to the late 60s when Moshe Feldenkrais and Dr. Ida Rolf and Wilhelm Reich, where people started realizing, wow, as humans, we have a lot of potential and we're not tapping into all that potential. And so what is really the potential of human consciousness? And I think that the body has something to do with that. And then Peter Levine, the founder of Somatic Experiencing, a lot of animal research was coming out showing that wild animals don't experience trauma but domesticated animals and humans do experience trauma. So why is that? Why do wild animals not experience it? And we're animals, so what's going on? And it's because the way that we metabolize difficulty, but trauma can happen in any kind of extreme experience. So you even find women who had their ideal, in some ways, birth experience, but it was like too much too fast, or they just were opened up into another realm that they had never been in and it was very destabilizing. Their system could not metabolize that and they need help re-regulating and getting back integrated on all levels of their system. So in some ways, I've always been doing this work. I was a dancer and I was a yoga teacher for a long time. I'm a body worker. I'm a rolfer, which is a kind of structural body work. So I've always known that my body is the template And I've always followed the deep desires of my body. And then I had a baby and my world just got completely rocked because I had a bad pelvic floor tear, which I just had no idea would even be in the realm of possibility because I thought I was totally healthy and I was doing yoga and I ate really well and I was swimming in the ocean every day. And so I was completely shocked. And then I was shocked at all the other problems I had as a result of that. And I recognized that it wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to be able to really heal unless I went into the psycho-emotional part of my tissues. My uterus was not going to go back into the right place unless I was able to actually deeply understand the psycho-emotional configuration that was happening at the time when the prolapse happened. And through the experience of receiving internal work with trauma skills that I received through my mentor, most of my physical problems resolved themselves. So I had a diastasis, which is an abdominal wall separation. It knit itself back together without any special breathing or exercises, just from the body work. And then my scar tissue softened and my vaginal opening went back to its normal shape. And I had hemorrhoids and they went away. And all of these shifts happened through the work and then Finally, my uterus and my pelvis gelled back into its optimal position the day that I told my 
ex-husband that our relationship wasn't going to work anymore. So through that process and that understanding of, okay, if I just go to the PT, they're only dealing with my pelvic floor strength. They're putting a wand in my vagina and asking me to squeeze around the wand. And there's so much emotion and so much feeling here. But if that happens, they're like, well, you need to go to the social worker or to the therapist. But if you go to the therapist in your postpartum, they're never going to ask you, well, are you incontinent? And I can tell you that incontinence will make you feel depressed. I was in chronic pain. I'd never been in pain before. Here I was. I used to teach yoga like all day long. Like I would wake up and practice from 630 to 830. And then I would teach a nine o'clock, a noon, a four o'clock and a seven o'clock a lot of days. So it was just completely foreign to me. And then my tools that I had before didn't work anymore. I was like, wow, if I do what I think I should do to be healthy and to take care of myself, it's totally backfiring on me. And so I realized that even I, who is a really embodied person, I'd had internal pelvic floor work before I ever even got pregnant, found myself in that place. I was like, well, I got to do something because if I can't even figure this out, how's the person who's never heard of this, who spent very little time in their body going to figure out how to have resources to work with this stuff? Hmm. It's such a important space and one that this is why the work you're doing is so important. It requires so much unpacking and so many layers and levels of analysis and embodiment. In what ways can you talk about how women are conditioned away from their bodies? Like why there is such a separation between kind of body and head? And if somebody's going into this for the first time, what can they do to start to reintegrate? Yeah, I mean, it is very complex and layered. And, you know, it's sort of like when anyone asks that question, it's kind of like, well, how far do we want to go back? You know, like, are we going to go back to Adam and Eve? Or are we going to, where are we, how far are we going to take this? But essentially, it's not just women who are separated from their bodies. We live in a culture that really values rationality and productivity and all of the qualities that we can attribute to the masculine. So when I say masculine, I'm talking about a polarity of qualities, not men, although men would have more predisposition towards those masculine qualities. So the total disrespect and disregard for the feminine, which is malleability, flexibility, darkness, moisture, cyclical rather than linear. Our puritanical culture is completely based on that, our work ethic. And because the body is seen as something that is unpredictable and more base, right? Like if you think about, well, what color is spiritual? People are going to say white. What color is hell? You know, what's not spiritual? It's going to be like black or red. Well, what color is menstrual blood? Red, like bleeding, bleeding. Like that's the body. It's considered lower in all basically spiritual faith. The body is considered to be a bit of an obstacle, you know, like we're supposed to get over our pain get over our identification with the body. You know, in the Bhagavad Gita, it says the body is like a well-worn suit. And so when people have these spiritual ideals that say things like, we're spiritual beings living in physical bodies, is there some truth to that? Yes. But if we adopt that point of view, hook, line, and seeker, you can see why people are like, well, what's your problem? Just deal with this. And 
women's health is much more complex than male health. In Chinese medicine, they say it's 10 times more difficult to treat a woman. And they're not like eye rolling and being like, that's freaking ridiculous that we have to do this. It's like, no, we're acknowledging that the reproductive endocrine immune system of a woman is much more complex because we cycle, because we bleed. And so treating it requires something different. Whereas in Western medicine, it's a crazy percentage of studies that are even done with women. It's like, 5% of medical studies are done with women. And we're just considered derivative. We're considered the derivative gender. And so that's the kind of care that we get. There's no question about it. I mean, if you're going to have a birth and you're going to have a mechanical delivery, forceps, vacuum extraction, cesarean birth, can you imagine having an ACL repair and then having no PT? It just doesn't make any sense. Like there's no way that if the genders were reversed, men would be getting surgery on their genitals and there wouldn't be mandatory physical therapy. Impossible. And so it gets complex because then there's the fundamentalist on the other side, which is kind of where I used to live, which is like, well, women's bodies are made to do this. So why do we need anything special? That's how I felt about postpartum care. I was like, I'm a badass. I'm strong. I'm healthy. Women have been doing this for centuries. Like, why would I be any different? And like, why do I need anything special? I've got breasts and I've got a sling. What's all this special treatment about? Because we're also indoctrinated as, you know, and I love feminism. And part of the pendulation of that has been, again, the denial of the capital F feminine. We can do anything men can do. We can do better. And then you have a baby and you're like, wow, this is a radically different experience. As much as I would like to equalize this and as much as I would like this to be, you know, fair, it's just not. That's another kind of reckoning that many women find themselves in is like they don't like the fact that the biology dictates that it's not fair. Hmm. Oh, there's so, so much, so much interesting. Your Keep question, going. Yeah. Well, your question was also like, what can somebody do? So yeah. I teach online courses. One of them is called Activate Your Inner Jaguar. The jaguar has like many different meanings for me. And it's not like my, well, maybe it's my spirit animal. I don't know. But like, it's not about that. It's about, so I'm a single parent. And I was lamenting the fact that I was having to do all the disciplining and provide all the unconditional love. So I was having to be the masculine and the feminine at the same time. And I was feeling sorry for myself. And my somatic practitioner, I have red hair and a lot of freckles. And he was from the Amazon. And he looked at me and he said, you look like an onsa, like the same with the onsa, which is a jaguar, and told me a story about how jaguar, the mothers are who teaches the cubs how to hunt, and about how that happens, and to go start watching jaguar videos. And I realized that we live in this culture, like most people's parenting styles too these days are like this thing about democracy, like everything's got to be fair. And what happens is that it actually creates a lack of safety and a lack of security because children aren't supposed to be equal to their parents. What happens a lot of times is couples give birth and the child becomes like the third on the top of the pyramid and the parents forget, no, we're at the top of the pyramid and we better strengthen that point of the pyramid because otherwise it's going to start to fracture and all eyes turn to the baby and the couple forgets to look towards each other for that domination. So People hate the word predator. They hate the word domination. I get it. And from a nervous system perspective, most women have been much more identified with the prey and the victim than they have been with the predator. 
And the way that nature works is that we have to be able to occupy all of those things because every animal, unless they're the most alpha, like I think the blue whale or something like that, in some situations is a predator and in some situations is a prey. But what happens with birth is that many women end up in the position where they feel helpless. Women don't know that if you get an epidural, it's forcing you into a freeze state. So if you've ever been in a freeze state before, that's going to be recalled up into your nervous system matrix, and it will be harder to use your voice. So then women blame themselves for not saying things. I don't know why in that moment I didn't say that, or I did say that and no one really listened to me. And they don't understand that how that was communicated probably was definitely complexified. And then there's also people who advocate, 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 advocate for themselves, and they get worn down, right? Over a couple of days, you're just like, okay, at some point you resign. And so what I do is I teach people how the nervous system works through their own systems so that consent, whether it's birth or sex, is not really just about what you say. And it's definitely not just about what you say no to. It's what you communicate with your body, your facial expressions, and your words in coordination. You know, we're taught to be polite, ladylike. We don't like conflict. Conflict threatens our sense of survival just from a nervous system perspective. Our most modern level of defense is our tribal relationships. So on a superficial level, it's like being part of a group. And so when we perceive that we might be creating a conflict, it threatens our level of safety. We're really putting women in very challenging positions where we're asking them to advocate for themselves and be fully on in their neocortex and defending themselves in a birth scenario when what their physiology really needs to do is relax. What can people do? Number one. It's important to prepare for birth, and it's especially important to be real about what your medical history is, not like, are you a high risk factor, but like, do you have medical trauma? Are you traumatized by being in hospitals? I mean, a lot of women who are, and then they find themselves in the hospital for the birth, and all that prior trauma is being activated. I feel like women are really expecting that like father, God, authority to have their backs. And unfortunately, the medical system does not have women's backs. And there's really no middle ground with birth. Everybody says that they're like, I want to hire you as my doula because I want a home birth in the hospital doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. You can't have a home birth in the hospital. You can't. It Mm. smells different. You can't control the temperature most of the time. I can be the best doula in the world and I don't have authority in a hospital. I can go up against the staff, which is not usually a very good idea because you're risking backlash and retaliation. And ultimately, people say, oh, well, if you hire a doula, your birth statistics are better and all that. But if you hire the doula, you actually have to trust the doula. Like just hiring me is like checking a box. It's not doing the inner work that someone needs to do to confront their own ability to occupy their inner jaguar because that occupation is what will allow you to speak when you need to speak, to not speak when you need to speak, and to fully occupy yourself in the birth space or the sexual space. So that's one thing people can do. Another thing that's, you know, more like what anyone could do right now, besides like take my course, is start to get to know the language of sensations. When we live in our heads, we're constantly trying to make meaning out of things. That's where anxiety lives. And when we live in the world of emotions, that's one layer deeper, but it's still not the whole picture. And so to start communicating in the language of sensation, you're aware of how things are affecting your physiology from moment to moment. 
and you can start developing better self-regulatory capacity because ultimately birth is an arousal event and our body has to be able to hold that level of charge. And if it can't, that's when people say like, I got behind the pain or I couldn't handle it anymore. It's because that level of charge, the system couldn't handle, or there wasn't a social connection that was strong enough and reliable enough to be something that someone could tether onto. That second part that you're talking about, the social connection and tethering onto it, what does that look like? Like, that have you like seen somebody yeah. who's with you in the birth environment, who's looking you in the eyes and saying, I know it's hard and you can do this and you believe them because you have a relationship with that person. They've been through, not everybody's been through it, but I personally would choose a birth attendant who's had a baby before and that you trust. So that when you're questioning yourself and you reach a threshold when you're like, it kind of feels like my pelvis is going to break in half, that you can look at someone and say, I feel like my pelvis is going to break in half. This is so intense. And the person can say, yeah, this is intense and you can do this. Wow. Not this is intense. You poor thing. Oh my gosh, get her some help. It's a real disservice to feminine power to be completely minimizing. I'm not saying I think, you know, people are like, well, you're not going to win a medal for the pain and all that stuff. That's not what it's about. It's about this is an initiation and it's a rite of passage and it's hard work. That's why it's called labor. Most of the time it is painful for most women. I didn't have an orgasmic birth. I didn't. It was really challenging, difficult and intense. And I did it. Yeah. And so I did it because I have fierce determination and I had absolutely zero doubt in my mind that that's what was going to happen, which is what a home birth makes you do. You know, I have so many friends who had home births who were like, believe me, I would have taken the drugs if anyone in the near vicinity had any, but they didn't because it's not an option. So you seal the doors and windows and you know, okay, I'm here to do this. And you trust your care providers that if something was not right, that they would be the ones to call it, that you wouldn't be the one because otherwise your mind stays in doubt because of course, it's just like having the biggest orgasm you've ever had. I mean, that's why the French call it the little death. You feel like you might cease to exist. It is a kind of a death. And we're so unfamiliar with that. And we live in such a sanitized, entitled culture. And I think social media is actually making it worse. You know, of course, there's lots of positive things to it. And it, I earn a lot of my livelihood from social media. So I'm grateful for it in a lot of ways. But I also see the ways that it contributes to a mob mentality. I thought the article in Time magazine was totally shitty, the one about the goddess myth. I thought there was so much misinformation, but so many people identified with that because they feel really disillusioned that they didn't have that birth that you're supposed to be able to have. And people aren't really realistic that if you keep living the life that you've been living, you know, you still work 40, 50 hours a week, you do everything quote unquote right. So you go to the gym and you go to your prenatals and you check those lists. That's really only maybe half of the process. Like it's an internal process. It's designed to be so because it's required for maturation. And we live in such an immature culture that it arrives as a complete shock. I mean, I feel really fortunate because I already had two major descents before I got to the birth altar. So although I was completely disconcerted, and it was by far the biggest initiation that I've experienced, I also knew I'm going to come out of this on the other side. And I don't need medication. And I don't need all these things. I need support. And I need a landing place. 
and I need to be able to fix my body because I knew like there's something that's going on that's much bigger than just me. And that's how I realized, wow, this is like a black hole in women's health. Like this is the forbidden. So it's really positive is that people are talking about it. But I really don't like this age of the noble victim we live in where it's like, unlike our mothers, we have permission to talk about the fact that motherhood can be challenging. It just becomes like a a martyr victim fest about how hard it is and how bad it is, you know, instead of like, this is actually a huge opportunity for right. relationship, for everything, you know, for our it relationship. It sounds like, like you're talking about rising to the occasion instead of just bemoaning how bad it is. Interesting. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. But is anything that's worthwhile not hard? I mean, do you know how hard it was to write a book? Holy <laughs> I would birth like five other kids. I wouldn't raise them, but I would definitely birth them before I'd write another book like that. That shit was difficult and it was <laughs> oh, not fun. Everyone I want to know said, about oh, this. Was that so fun writing your book? No, it was horrible. It was exhausting. I had no help. Like I thought I would have an editor. I turned in my first draft and they're like, you need an editor. And I was like, well, I thought that's what you were. Like, that's your title, an editor. And they're like, no, you're going to have to hire one. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm hiring an editor. I thought you were my editor. Like, and I mean, it took four years to write. I did it as a single mom moving from Brazil to the US, you know, whatever. So it was really hard, but it was totally worth it. And it was also one of those things where it was inevitable. It was like, even when I said to myself, okay, like, this isn't happening, I'm not getting a publisher just forget it. Like maybe life's telling you this is not the direction and maybe you need to just chill out about it. And it just wouldn't let me go. Like it had me. And birth is like that. Birth and postpartum, like nobody gets through pregnancy, birth and postpartum gets through that whole thing. And is just like, wow, yeah, that was easy. And why would we expect it to be? Why would we expect that growing birthing and feeding another human being with our body, like with our physical body, even if someone like adopts or whatever, it's still an extremely visceral experience. How could we think that that would just be normal? And yet all the photographs are of sleeping babies. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like you just see so many. So I don't know why, but I'm hung up on this idea Mm -hmm. of the birth partner. And I think it's because I'm having conversations with my husband about it right now. And we're doing scenario planning of what to go through this next time around. And one of the things you said was about how strong the person who is there supporting you needs to be. You know, if you're going through one of the biggest, most transformational, most painful, difficult things that you're going through, there's a moment there where I can see somebody asking questions. Do you want food? How do you, is this okay? Do you want pain? And like that to me, I can feel it in the hairs on the back of my neck just is so antagonistic and it doesn't work. How do we... Wait, asking someone what you need is antagonistic? For me, and this is also my experience, not necessarily everybody's experience, but if my husband were to come over and say, instead of like giving me calm and loving direction, were to say like, well, what about this or this or this or ask me to make a choice in the middle of those deep moments, it's a lot harder for me to think. Like it's a lot harder for me to be directive and guide somebody else when I want direction. And I guess so I you're guess, asking him to you want uh, him to just know what you need instead of asking you for confirmation. In this case, I think that's what I'm stumbling over. Thank you for mm-hmm. thinking this with me. 
Well, My, here's the thing. Please, I yes. really think that this is not a time for partners to be doing everything. You know, I asked so many women, okay, what's your postpartum plan? And their answer is my husband's taking two weeks off of work. Birth is the domain of women. It always has been. When birth went wrong was when birth is taken out of the hands of midwives. If you look worldwide, the best birth statistics for maternal health. So that means mortality. That means the best ways that women stay alive after having babies are the countries where midwives are mandatory and doctors are optional. Holland um, being the best one. France being another one. You can't have a baby with a doctor in those places unless there's something medically wrong with you. This is why there are postpartum doulas. This is why in my book, there's five universal needs for postpartum women, which are needs that I came up by studying cultures all around the world who do have postpartum practices that are intact. When a woman gets pregnant in Taiwan or Hong Kong, that's of a certain social class, middle class to upper class, because the lower classes, everyone already lives together intergenerationally anyway, so they don't need to hire someone because they're the ones that actually know the practices. Interesting. Um, The first thing they do is hire a postpartum nurse. And that confinement nurse comes to your house six days a week and lives at your house and makes you meals, does the bodywork treatments, gives you the herbal teas that you need. This is not a man's job. And so we just set them up to fail. You know, maybe 5% of men, but actually if that was your man's bent, you would be upset in the bedroom because in the bedroom, they wouldn't be taking charge like you wanted them to. We have all these double standards. And again, it's all with morality and ideology. Well, you know, I'm the one who had the baby, so he should be doing chores and this and that and every other thing. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe. But maybe you want to set yourself up for success by having a woman that's around that's not going to ask you those questions. That's just going to say, now's the time you need to steam now. And here's your breakfast and you haven't eaten for a while and do this. And here, I'm going to hold your baby so that you can take a bath. And then, you know, you can both eat well because there's like the food that you should be eating and that makes sense for that period of time. I just think we're setting men up to fail and it's Mm. not necessary. And it creates all these weird relationship dynamics. It's the same thing in birth. I think it's ridiculous to try to have men be the birth coaches or whatever. Is that the right role for some men? Sure. Do a lot of men want to do that? Yeah, because they desperately want to get it right. They desperately want to be that. But, you know, in a lot of these cultures, women go away to have the baby and then they stay with their moms for six weeks so that they don't have any pressure for household duties. They don't have any pressure for physical affection. So they can really just do the work of healing and bonding with the baby. And I think there's a lot of beauty in having the partner involved in that. But There should be somebody, ideally it would be happening as a community, but now we usually have to hire people who know what we're doing. Yeah, I just think it's one of these ideals that we have that gender wouldn't matter and that, you know, all of these tasks are objective tasks and that somehow your husband should just know what you need without confirmation. Interesting. Part of me is getting at trying to understand like how we can be better partners for each other and supportive of each other. But I also I want to move on and ask you, which you've started to move into. I want to ask you about the fourth trimester, the transition into motherhood, the postpartum period, and what you mentioned, these five universal postpartum needs. Can you talk about that time period, those three months post-birth, why they're so critical and what kind of healing and support the woman needs after birth? 
Yeah. So in my book, there's a whole postpartum plan in the appendix. It's like four pages. It's kind of going through everything from relationally. That would be sort of a segue into your last comment about like what you can do to prepare. I mean, part of the thing you're doing is you're having conversations with your husband. And if you already know that that's something that doesn't work for you, I call it giving your code. So telling him how he can succeed, not telling him the problem because you know, lots of women are like, well, I tell my husband, I just feel so unattractive. And it's like, yeah, but they can't do anything with that. Or I tell him, don't do this. So just give him the formula of what he can do. Every morning, I need you to do X. And just assume you're doing it right, unless I ask you for something else. If it's his insecurity of like, checking it back in again and again about is this okay? Is this okay? Build his confidence by telling him, yeah, that's great. That's exactly what I wanted. And mm continue to do that throughout your pregnancy so you build that the he code, builds his confidence not the now yeah. yes okay so the fourth trimester it's a period of time so ultimately the most important time for women's health in this whole time from pregnancy birth to postpartum is the 6 weeks after that she has the baby so in ayurveda they say 42 days for 42 years that how a woman is cared for in those 42 days can either set herself up for radiant health for the next 42 years, so much so that you can even cure lifelong illnesses at that time, like migraines. You can get rid of them during that time by doing certain herbal things. Or you can set in disease and illness when you don't have the right things, which is much, much harder to work with down the road. So in a way, it's like this special power-packed time where the veils between the worlds are thin and the input into the system is like super-powered, which is really great because it means if we do things, if we support women, we support ourselves, we invest in that time, we can really set ourselves up to be in a great position after those six weeks. And the fourth trimester is really like three months because a trimester is three months. People get really <laughs> indignant. They're like, it can't be the fourth trimester because it's fourth <laughs> trimester. Sweet. But now there's even a fifth trimester book that's out. So that's interesting. It was a term that was coined by Harvey Karp, who's an attachment theory advocate. It's basically just saying that just as much as a mom needed a baby and a baby needed a mom when she was pregnant that interdependent unit is still completely as important after the baby is out of a woman's body. And we've forgotten that knowledge so much so that you go in a hospital and lots of babies are in the room with the mom and they're in a little plastic box beside the bed. Bodies need bodies. And it's a radical change to go from being in the internal environment to the external environment. And then it's a radical change for a mother to have that baby outside of her body. And so there's very specific needs that the mother has as well as the baby has. And what we've done is we've really focused on what the baby needs. Most people know a baby needs a constant food supply. It needs loving touch. It needs to be warm. Most people know a baby needs to be held. A baby needs eye contact because that's how they're developing social cues and know they're safe. But a woman needs those same things. And so the fourth trimester is really trying to impress on people that this is a special period of time. And there's ways with food, with body work. It's funny because even saying it, it's like I can already perceive how it's heard on the other end because these are all things we think of as luxuries in our culture. We think of like having someone cook for you, like that's for rich people. 
that's like a luxury. Like I'll just get boxed salads from Whole Foods and get some smoothies, you know, or some of my clients eat Subway and soft drinks during their postpartum time. They don't understand that the food itself is actually what's going to help the tissues repair. The food is what's going to allow you to feed your baby without your body leaching all of the minerals and nutrients from your stores to produce breast milk and to do the healing. So we need to be like really conscientious about what we're putting into our body so that we can heal. And, you know, I say to people, if the placental wound site, right, where the placenta separates from the uterus is, you know, the size of a salad plate, dinner plate, if that was on the outside of the body, we would for sure know that we needed to be in bed. You know, you wouldn't go to Target two days after you have a dinner plate size wound site or six days after. But when women come out of birth, because all of the changes are unseen and there is this ethos of like, well, I better get back to it, you know, like, oh my gosh, my body's so different and I better get back into my pre-pregnancy genes and I better start now if I'm going to be back at work in six weeks. They just completely forget. And, you know, my sister left the hospital and she was like, well, is there anything I need to know? And they're like, no, just take it easy. You know, they don't tell you anything about, yeah, here's what you can do. Call your pelvic floor PT, schedule a visit at six weeks, start vaginal steaming right away and do so daily for this period of time. Belly wrapping might be good for you. Oh, you have a cesarean? Okay, you're going to need scar care. Be on the lookout for blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. It's like everything is just subsumed into the category of women's mental health so that if anything isn't right, it's just like, oh, you better have the mental health screening and then you're given, you know, antidepressants or birth control. And that's about it. And uh, you can have sex again, which seems so strange at right. the six-week mark. Yeah, so there's not yeah. really any kind of support. But if you have a postpartum doula who comes to your house, you have somebody that's having those conversations with you. You mm-hmm. know, if you have a peristeam hydrotherapist who specializes in vaginal steaming, they're going to be having those conversations with you. There's just so many ways that that can happen, you mm-hmm. know. And some people say, well, I can't afford it. And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, if you really can't afford it, because we afford all kinds of things. So if you really can't afford it, then how about once a week, three hours once a week? Because imagine if you're postpartum and mostly you're spending time by yourself, you know, your partner's gone back to work and you're pretty much at home like all day by yourself with a baby, which by the way, is already a recipe for depression. I mean, nobody should be alone with a baby for more than a couple hours at a time. If we lived communally, there would just be someone in the other room. It doesn't even mean they're in your room talking to you. It's just like somebody that could help you if you needed help, somebody that could grab some water for you if you're stuck on the couch and every time you move, your baby's waking up. You know, someone who could hold your baby so that you could poop if you needed to. So then I say hire someone for three hours a week and have them make meals, make sure that you do a steam Ideally, this is someone who's trained in either Mayan abdominal massage or, you know, the Indonesian or Asian or even Mexican belly wrapping practices. I'll say, oh, have you gotten any body work? Yeah, I've gotten one massage. And that seems like, oh, that's really great postpartum care because I got one massage because I'm like splurging on myself kind of thing. But in Asia, people get a massage every single day for 40 days because it's known that that's what's helping your body eliminate the unnecessary chemicals that were coursing through it, whether or not you had anesthesia and it's helping you make the transition. So they wouldn't even think of, you know, what do you mean one massage? Like 
it's vigorous and it's considered first exercise because your tissues and joints are being moved for you. And a lot of them specialize in infant massage as well. So they're doing that also for the baby. It's so interesting. People talk about pregnancy cravings and there are some cliche pregnancy cravings, but I remember in my first pregnancy, I craved, and this is why your book connected so many dots for me. I remember craving women and companionship. And I remember craving water, like swimming in swimming pools. And I was just like, I couldn't explain it. I didn't know Mm -hmm. why, but I just needed to go swimming. And I wanted women around me. And I worked in the masculine, very tech-centric startup world. And I worked with almost Mm. all boys. It was wild where I was like, this is what I have to have. Like pickles and ice cream, sure. But Mm -hmm. those things are my wayfinding devices. And it was wild to see that and feel that. I could ask you so many more questions and you've given us so much to think about. Can you tell us what you are excited about right now and what you're building next? Oh my gosh, I'm excited about so many things. One of the things I'm excited about is funding some studies. So what changes policy is statistics and research. So a lot of this knowledge, like you said, you read the book and it just made sense to you. This is wisdom we have and we can remember it. But what the medical system and the political system respond to is data. So yeah, I'm like forming and creating some longitudinal studies and some more short-term studies about the effects of postpartum care, people who get it and people who don't get it and what happens as a result. So I think that's going to be huge because American College of Gynecologists just came out with this new report saying that postpartum care needed to be better and meaning there needs to be more than just a six-week visit. But the fact is that OB-GYNs, the good ones, are totally overbooked. They're trying to show up for the people that are having birth because it's so important to women to have their care provider at their birth. And that's really hard from a doctor's point of view because they're basically on call all the time. So they're not trained to evaluate biomechanics. Like they're not trained to evaluate pelvic floor tone. They're kind of trained to evaluate like organ position, but they need to have appropriate referrals. But for them to know who they will refer to, they have to have evidence there. So I'm working in collaboration with steamy chick, Kelly Garza. She's the world's leading expert on vagina steaming. And we're coming up with different kinds of studies that we're going to fund so that there will be evidence about the efficacy of steaming postpartum, the efficacy of having a postpartum doula. So I'm extremely excited about that. I'm like beyond excited about my Jaguar course. I've taken 500 women through it and the kinds of changes that people get through the online interface is so astounding because I just realized like I can only see so many one-on-one clients in my office and I have these like super long waiting lists and it's actually completely intimidating. And I'm like, I have to have a way that I can help more people and have it be more efficient because our planet's asking for this. I mean, you see like there's just so much interest in women's health. That's what's so exciting. We really are living at a pivot point. The FDA just yesterday, the FDA came out and said that all of the treatments that are suggesting vagina lasering that they're not FDA approved. And that's huge for the FDA to come out and say it. And they put those companies on probation. So all this stuff that like Vogue is writing, I forget what all this stuff's called. They all have like cutesy names, like the Mona Lisa and stuff like that. The FDA flat out said, we're putting these companies on probation. There are not longitudinal studies about this. This is not FDA approved. 
I mean, that's huge. That's huge. So women are waking up and we're in the age of me too. Women are saying, we're not going to stand for this anymore. The shadow side of that is the sort of, you know, cult of the noble victim. But the positive side of it is it's going to happen in healthcare. Women are saying, I'm not, no, I'm not doing this. I can do this on my terms. And my Jaguar course really helps women do that because we can want to do it and we can have the idea of doing it. And then we have to have the actual inner alignment to be able to do that and continue to do it. So, I mean, we could have a whole other hour show on everything I'm excited about because I've got like 12 books I need to write and my world is proliferating at a fast rate. I'm excited about my own podcast and the conversations that I'm having on it. I'm excited about being in a world where even though it's frustrating because like some of these birth conversations people have been having since the 60s to the back to the land movement and it just feels like a repetitive, like just really we're back here talking about like people are actually questioning breastfeeding, really? In that goddess myth, it was like, you know, don't feel bad if you don't breastfeed. Well, of course, don't feel bad if you can't do it or if you have some trauma that means you can't do it. Now we got to convince ourselves that it's not better. Of course, breastfeeding is better. Is it better mm. for every single person every time? No, but for 99.5% of women and babies, is it better? Of course it is. Mm. Is it the same if a man straps a breast on his chest and puts a feeding tube? No, it's not. Like, we're mammals. Let's face it. And not only face it, but embrace it and learn how to work with it so that we can survive these intense times of crazy amounts of stimulus and so much negative input in terms of, you know, it's like we're living in, in a time where it's like catastrophe every single day. So if your nervous system is not regulated, you're living in a place where you really think our country might just collapse. I mean, I have so many friends who think like the stock exchange is going to collapse. There's so much like apocalyptic thinking and it's not true. Mm. You know, we have all the solutions available to us. Is the planet in a bad way? Yeah. But do we have the capacity to change that? Of course. We could have you on for many, many more <laughs> shows, many more episodes, which would be a delight. I think we've given listeners just an incredible amount to think about. And I'm going to link up your podcast, your courses and the book in our show notes so that you can go enjoy the book as much as I did and check out this course, which sounds incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here and to talk through all of this. Totally. My pleasure. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.